It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. And I have a return guest because the work she does for the Southern Center for Human Rights affects so many people and has such provocative, interesting litigation that really makes an impact. And we had such good, good things said about the last time you had us had you here, Sarah. You were my first. Cheers. We'll take a tap of our tea um, as to our first. Hang on, I'm going to tap. There we go. A little clinking of the cups. Um, you were my first return guest. Hi. Hi, BJ. So glad to be back. And we're back about something, though, that uh, to our listeners is probably going to be shocking in terms of how prevalent it is, and that it just seems like we're talking about the dark ages, certain time when we're talking about prison and, in particular, solitary confinement. So to start, your organization has um, involved in litigation in the, in, against the state of Georgia um, with regard to trying to stop solitary confinement in Georgia. That's right. We have a, a pending lawsuit right now that challenges conditions at the special management unit, which is a 192-bed facility in Jackson, Georgia. It's Georgia's most restrictive solitary confinement unit. So solitary confinement, let's just talk about in general what is considered to be solitary confinement what is someone who receives that within the prison as a designation that they need to serve time there? What are the conditions like? Sure. So I can tell you about what the conditions are like in this particular facility. Uh, people in this prison are in some form of lockdown at all times. Most of them are locked inside of their cells virtually 24 hours a day, five to seven days a week. What it's like is 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 this. Um, if you can imagine being confined inside a concrete box about the size of a parking space. Um, uh, people go out for yard time a couple days a week, two days a week for two hours at a time. Yard time consists of essentially walking around in circles in an empty outside cage. Um, and that's that's about it. That's about uh, a description of life in the special management unit. The cells are constructed so that people cannot see outside. Uh, it is it is really an extreme form of solitary confinement, and it has a very detrimental effect on people's behavior and mental health. So what are the reasons that they say they are putting someone in solitary confinement? What is What are the categories of, of, yeah. of supposed infractions? Right. Well, it varies quite a bit. There are some people who are there for, it's really quite surprising, in fact, there are some people who are there for relatively minor misconduct. 
having a cell phone in prison. There's one person that we represent right now who's there for insubordination. But let's not sugarcoat it. There are absolutely people in this particular unit and other solitary settings who are there for very serious reasons. There are some people who, there who have done really bad things, and it, it makes no sense to pretend otherwise. But at the same time, there are some things we don't do in a civilized society. And one of those things is to lock another human being inside a concrete box for years on end until he goes crazy. But that, unfortunately, is the, the absolute reality of... Um, of the kind of confinement that the folks at the SMU in Georgia are subjected to. And, of course, this is something that we see happening all over the country as well. So the fences can range anything, I'm assuming, rape, um, murder, um, very ser- arson, very se- where, where there are death involved. I mean, very serious offenses, I hear you saying that. And so, you know, the popular thing that you hear when you just talk to folks, you know, or... Um, God forbid somebody is the victim of a crime or their family member was killed by someone. There's some very strong feelings, but the person is incarcerated. They are not facing the death penalty. They are going to be there. A lot of these, I think I read in your lawsuit number, are serving life in prison. So they're not going to get out tomorrow or anything like that. And yet they are put into you know, when you, we're in a little small studio right now, and this would be about half the size that we're in now, just a parking space. So very little ability to move, no sunlight, no windows, which sounds scary. Yeah. And then add to it that it's not just a short-term thing. It's not just like, we're going to put you, I, you know, I think like in the movies when they say, we're going to put you in the hole for a day or two to show maybe yeah. a lesson. We're, we're talking more than a day or two. Is that right? We're talking years on end. Um, most people in the SMU are there for years, not days. Uh, the named plaintiff in our case was there for eight years. Uh, two of the other plaintiffs in our case were are there right now and have been there for nine and almost 10 years, respectively. These are very long terms of segregated confinement. And as to your point about uh, safety, that's an excellent point, and I can understand why people would have some questions about what do you do with people who misbehave even within the prison system. Aside from the the, um, concerns about humane treatment, which we've already talked about, there are public safety and prison management reasons to uh, to be very worried about the solitary confinement practices that we see in the state of Georgia and elsewhere. The fact of the matter is that keeping people in a concrete box for years on end until they essentially deteriorate and go crazy is really bad for prison management. It's bad for the staff that work in the prisons that um, uh, are serve such a vital public function. How, how is it bad for them? Because it exacerbates, it essentially exacerbates difficult behavior. It makes people's behavior worse, not better. And that has um, that that is the consistent finding of the experts who who have studied this issue. Uh, one thing I, I I would note is that we we've, we've hired um, in our case we hired Dr. Craig Haney, one of the foremost experts in the nation studying this issue. Dr. Haney came to tour this facility in October of 2017, and he found that it was was one of the 
harshest and most draconian units in the country. And, you know, I think what it's important to remember also is that you had mentioned a moment ago that some people, you know, folks aren't getting out. In fact, that's not true. In fact, what we have found is that there are a lot of people who max out their sentences, meaning they come to the end of their prison terms, and they walk out of prison directly from one of these isolation cells to the streets with no uh, reentry plan, no transition plan, nothing. They are going from a solitary confinement cell to the free world. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's that's really terrible public policy. It's terrible public policy. And, you know, it brings up some of the things in the news, you know, like the Angola prison that some of the, the gentleman who was recently released from there um, and they had a history of solitary confinement or, you know, thinking back Nelson Mandela. You know, the United Nations urged countries to adopt literally the Nelson Mandela rules with regard to prison. I think it's a consensus internationally that humane treatment of persons incarcerated are critical. And he endured periods of solitary confinement and described how brutal it was. And that's, you know, going back many years ago. So it seems shocking that in 2018, the level of deprivation that you're describing and that is part of the affidavits that are in the lawsuit from the folks who are enduring it is is really unfathomable. It, <laughs> now, I, I mean, if I sound like I'm at a loss of words, I am a little bit because reading it, it... it, it you, you just can't, it, it just doesn't seem like that should be the case. Yeah. It, it is hard to fathom that this is happening um, just about an hour south of Atlanta. And again, I, I want to emphasize, I, I'm not pretending that, that the folks who are incarcerated in the, this facility are choir boys. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, and maybe the best way to explain it is to give you some of um, my impressions from seeing what the conditions in this place were actually like. Share it. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this to start. The, the images and the sounds from that visit will be etched in my memory for the rest of my life. When you walk in, the first thing that hits you is the noise, the banging, the screaming, the yelling. There's a burning smell in the air. There's just a sort of feeling of chaos in, in this unit. Um, then you take a look at the cells. And again, we, we talked about the fact that they're about the size of a parking lot, parking space, excuse me. Many of the folks there shower inside their cells. There's a tiny spigot on the wall. So, you know, when they shower, water fills their cell. You walk from cell to cell and, and we, we talk with some of the people that were there and it becomes apparent after not very long, that a huge percentage of people there are people with serious mental illness. I was going to get there with that. In mental illness, what types of mental illness were they diagnosed before? Or do you think some had pre-existing mental illness or, in that, or did, it, did it get exacerbated by the conditions or did it get literally get created by the isolation? Yeah, uh, some of both. For, for sure, we met with people who have long, long psychiatric histories stretching from childhood to the present. We also met with people who didn't have a, a previous uh, psychiatric diagnosis, but who found themselves deteriorating after spending some time in isolation. Wow. And 
I mean, how is it that this has not come to light sooner? I guess because from what you're describing with the numbers, this has been going on for a while. It has been going on for a while. I mean, I think there are a number of reasons for it. And one of them is, of course, that it can be very difficult to interest members of the public in this issue. Unfortunately, uh, and I find this to be indefensible, but there are people who believe that that there are some human beings are throwaway people and that if they've done something to violate the law, we shouldn't care any longer about um, how they are treated. I think that's a, a, a terrible thing to believe and, and that it's um, both inhumane and also totally counterproductive to the goals of public safety. Because the fact of the matter is most people who go to prison are coming out of prison. And we need to be concerned about how those folks are going to reintegrate back into society. And I'll tell you this, they are going to have a very hard time doing so when they are released directly from these extreme conditions of, of solitary confinement into the free world. You know, and to think about it for years and just thinking back, because we, you know, I know that I've um, practiced criminal law for a long time and visit clients in jail. And although I haven't had anybody in this particular unit, I have had clients who I remember one in particular, I drove down to South Georgia to see him. I made an appointment. And when he came to the window, he was so strange. It wasn't that um, he's a younger guy in his 20s. And he, he was looking at me funny. He wasn't intaking information right. He just kind of, this blank look, and I would, usually we have a good repartee when I go see him, because, you know, when your lawyer comes to see you and you're incarcerated, you're very happy to talk to your lawyer about what's going to happen with your case. And then finally, I said, what is wrong with you? And he goes, well, I was in solitary for a while. And it took my breath away. I had never seen a client like it. Now, it's not to the level of the description in this lawsuit in years, but just seeing someone who had been, quote, put in the hole for a couple days, he was not the same person yep. that I had met numerous times before and working on his case. Right. Solitary confinement does does something to the brain. And, the, you know, I'll say this. The good news is that there are states around this country, uh, departments of correction, that are waking up to the reality that solitary confinement is it has been overused in the past and needs to be scaled back, and that it's good correctional management to do that. One of those states is Colorado. That's right. Yeah. The governor of Colorado wrote an extraordinary op-ed for the New York Times because he ended long-term solitary confinement in Colorado. Yes, this was the commissioner of the Department of Corrections in Colorado. And, and this is really born out of a, a really tragic event. There was a prisoner who was released, as we've been discussing, released directly from a solitary confinement prison into free society who ended up um, murdering the former commissioner of the Colorado Department of Corrections. Wow. After that occurred, the current commissioner um, has really been a national leader on this issue of scaling back the use of solitary confinement, uh, not releasing people directly from solitary confinement to the street, and curtailing the use of this kind of isolated confinement 
quite substantially. And just just to give an example, I believe the current policy in Colorado is that people are not subjected to um, the again these the the more extreme forms of solitary confinement for more than 14 days. That's the policy in Colorado right now. And you compare that to a place like Georgia, where where we have you know we represent people who have been in in these units for going on a decade and more. Wow. And, you know, even I think there's another suit just recently in Florida of a a teenager in solitary confinement for months without care or education in Palm Beach County, and they're filing suit there with help of the Human Rights Defense Center. And again, the thought of a teen, I mean, you have various age ranges. Oh, and that reminds me. Well, I'll get back to that next thing. But here, first, you have a teenager who is in solitary confinement. And I can't even imagine how drastic that is for the teenage brain that is still developing. Yep. And the damage that can be done to a developing brain, particularly in young men, um, it ta- there is a slower arc uh, to maturation. Yep. And the permanent damage of someone who may have done something wrong but would have had a shot at habilitation being um, put backwards. It's, it's unreal. One of the things that we often see from people who are subjected to solitary confinement for long periods of time, a, a lot of such people are driven to engage in extreme acts of self-harm. And I'm, I'm thinking right now of a young person who was in this particular facility. We see all the time in the, in the records that we reviewed as part of this litigation, reports of people cutting themselves in the most extreme ways, banging their heads against the wall, overdosing, attempting to hang themselves, eating their own feces, drinking their own urine, swallowing batteries, uh, swallowing razor blades, and the list goes on. It's, it's, it's harrowing, and it it's, should serve as a, a wake-up call that we really need to take a, a deeper look at how these kinds of units are being managed. Also, I found interesting in what you have filed with the court, there was one inmate who had gone in much younger, and he was in his 60s at this point. So I know with my own clients who, let's say I'm doing an appeal or a habeas later, and they went in younger, you know, they've wisened up, like their pace is slower, their health is different, yeah. they're not the same. And yet, can you tell me a little bit about this client who he's in his 60s and still being placed in solitary confinement? There are actually more than there's there's more than one person who's um, getting on in years and is still in the special management unit at this prison. You know, I think one of the problems is the review process, and that's one of the the subjects of our litigation. We've we've made the claim that the the there there is in nominally supposed to be a review of each person's continued confinement in this facility, right? And so what the prison, the Department of Corrections says is that people get this review every 90 days to determine whether their behavior has um, warranted them to leave or to be moved up a, a phase in, in what they call this this program. What we've managed to, dis- to figure out in the discovery in this case is that this review process has been more or less a, a sham. 
Nominally, there is a classification committee at the prison that meets every 90 days to review a person's case. But in practice, many people have been approved for release by this classification committee over and over and over again, but yet they remain in the facility. In fact, our name plaintiff in the case was recommended for release from the facility, I believe, 14 times by the classification committee. But folks in the central office at the Department of Corrections simply rejected that decision every time it came before them. And I guess maybe because they kept seeing that he was in solitary and maybe didn't believe the recommendation was appropriate because, you know, it's almost like the self-defeating thing. If it, You know, when you're a kid in school and you have a lot of marks against you and you may change or your parents get you therapy or whatever, you, your grades start improving, but you're still not admitted to the the college because they're still seeing the whole record. So for someone like who you're describing, it just sounds like to me in some ways, either they're not looking at it, which is one way, or they just keep going back to those earlier acts, not realizing that things have changed, maturation has occurred, life has occurred, and also um, the effects of being in solitary. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And if I the, the, the parts that I think really need to change in Georgia and very likely elsewhere are there, there may be a small subset of people who need to be very carefully, carefully managed. What we see, though, is that far too many people are grouped into this form or are, are required to spend years and years in, in this extreme form of solitary confinement. People who really don't need to be there for that long. It's also incredibly expensive to manage this unit. And the other thing is the length of time. I mean, it, you, it just, uh, the consensus is that the practice of keeping people in for this length of time is detrimental to the person, detrimental to public safety, and makes prisons harder to manage. And I think even in Colorado, after they ended it, and a lot of some corrections folks didn't agree with it, but then with time, they started to realize that they were seeing actually more positive results and yep. positive results with the inmates and their behavior, positive results for the employees that they are feeling safer. And, you know, I, and I would imagine that for some, you know, corrections facilities are often in rural areas. They are an important employer in a lot of rural areas. I don't know necessarily, you know, some people dream of various jobs. I'm not sure that everyone who works there thought that's where they're going to be or that would be their career. And there has to be some mental damage to them to having to see that and become numb to it because they can't change it themselves unless those higher up are able to change it so that they don't have to be in that working condition. So there is, although, like you said, this may not be a population of people that you immediately feel sympathetic to, but certainly everyone can agree that those who go into public service and public service job is working in a prison as well, just as other forms of public service. You need a safe, sane place to work yes. as much as possible. Yes. We should all be grateful to the public servants who run our prisons and uh, especially the folks who work day in, day out. It's a, it's a difficult job under difficult circumstances. The pay is often not great. And I think what I'm saying is that 
we do a disservice to those folks who are doing such a difficult and important job by keeping people for this length of time under these extreme conditions. What's the next steps in this litigation that you're working on? Sure. So we have recently filed a motion for a preliminary injunction in the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Georgia. And what we've done is we've asked the court to step in and to require the department to make some immediate changes to alleviate some of the more some of the the draconian uh, conditions at this facility and we are waiting to see whether a, an evidentiary hearing will be scheduled in the case okay and certainly the goal is to end it at this facility that you are suing in but also just changing the policy in Georgia and having hopefully a ripple effect like it has in other in other states where Perhaps this court will take into account what's happening around the country, that there seems to be, regardless of politics, it's interesting when you read a lot of the journals and articles in different litigation in different states, the amicus briefs, which means friend of the court briefs, which are organizations who want to give, when when a case is involving public policy, those who work in that area send um, briefs in support of the various positions. And some of those are both ones who have politics that are on the left and those that are politics on the right. It seems to be that both sides of the political spectrum, which doesn't always agree, conservative or liberal, seem to be in agreement about the human rights costs here and the financial costs and the emotional costs and just, you know, what does a free society look like even for those who may not be able to go out into the world like the rest of us do, but that there is an essence of humanity that's required. So I am hopeful for y'all as we go along, and you'll have to keep us posted, that maybe the spirit of Nelson Mandela will come down to Georgia and to these other states, this case down in Florida. There, there's litigation all around the country to, to make this right. Well, I think you're absolutely right that there is this growing national consensus and that people on from various political perspectives are realizing that we need to make a change. Uh, and I'm hopeful that over time we'll see a change here in Georgia. I think as of now, we're we're about 15 years behind the times. We'll see if we can catch up. We, we will fast forward, hopefully, and we will see. As always, thank you for joining me and and letting all our listeners understand more. You know, it's one thing to read an article. It's very different to be able to hear and understand the detail and the stories of the individuals that are a part of this lawsuit. And as with every episode, I choose a cup of tea that's appropriate for us. And today's tea, it's actually a funky thing. It's some of these tea drops that are kind of a little star you drop into the water, and it is Earl Grey and Rose. And I chose that because Earl Grey um, is a black tea that actually is supposed to enhance courage. And it takes courage to sue the government. It takes courage to represent people who, on its face, you feel like you don't rep- you shouldn't get representation. And 
you and your fellow attorneys and the lawyers, I think, at Kilpatrick who have are working with you on this case. And that's the other nice thing about your organization is it is a public service organization that a lot of law firms provide their services in order to help people who can't afford it. So some courage in the tea with the touch of Rose, and Rose always is a little heart. We have to put our heart selves into everything, including law to be able to find out what's fair and just for everyone. So thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, BJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>